0: Now, what you all need to understand the knack to being selected to be on this panel is to be called mark we're gonna have a bit of a challenge or I'm gonna have a little bit of a challenge when I invite mark to comment I'm not quite sure how we're going to do this we might need to revert to um, using surnames or something like that but in order to make sure that we don't spend too much time on on introductions. I'm going to really quickly ask uh, the panellists to just say which mark they are, if they're not a mark, who they are, and which organisation they are representing. But otherwise, in your programme, you can see bios, etc. So, could I start perhaps with this mark,
1: I'm Mark Campbell from NICE, I'm uh, responsible for our non-drug evaluation programmes.
2: Hello, I'm Mark Kelsey, uh, GP and uh, Clinical Chair of Southampton CCG.
3: I'm Colin Esby, another Scottish voice. So I'm not the voice of the prof in Sleepy but I'm co-founder of Big Health. Hi, I'm Martin Kelly. I'm a Professor of Cardiology at Imperial. I've done a
4: lot of work in remote monitoring of patients, doing randomised trials, dare I say it, for the last 15 years. i also a practising clinician and lead the Digital Health Initiative of NICE, so I'm very interested in getting a feel for where you think this should go, but I won't officially be answering questions on NICE's position.
5: Uh, I'm gonna be Mordechai today, so I'm going to choose my Jewish name, if that's okay, so you don't need to call me Mark if you can pronounce Mordechai, I know you English people have a problem with. (laughs) If you could say Loch, I'd be interested. Uh, I'm here I'm a non-practicing clinician I gave up a long time ago given we keep doing to patients and not with them so it's nice to hear that we are doing that today and I'm wearing my hat uh, for Diabetes UK as their North West Service Champion in England not in Scotland.
6: Thank you I'm neither a mark nor a man so um, I'm Indra I think
0: I spoke earlier for those of you who heard but I work as a clinical lead in NHS England. That's lovely thank you very much to all of you. Now. Um, if this works effectively, um, I'd like you to think of me as the Michelle Hussein in the uh, studio, who's going to be fielding the questions. And hopefully out there somewhere we have another Mark who's going to be um, the John Simpson who's going to be the roving reporter and, and picking on people to ask questions. Uh, in a typical uh, style of question time, we ha- do have one or two people who have already been thinking about things that they would like to ask you. Um, and we're going to be doing that under a set of themes, which you have all been discussing um, over the last 25 minutes. Consequently, I would like to therefore invite, if we can find him and we can get a microphone to him, uh, Michael Pearson, who's a physiotherapist Nottingham University Hospital NHS Trust, kicking off um, under the theme that, um, of endorsement, which um, I think I am interpreting as meaning who is... The body who is responsible for endorsing a technology as ready to go uh, because it has got everything in place that it needs to do so. But, Michael, over to you.
1: Very keen to be able to promote um, apps that we could give to patients to encourage them to be healthier. The app stores at the moment are full of all these different health and wellbeing apps too many for us as a local trust to be able to just look at and decide what's best for the patients and we don't have the technical know-how to understand you know are they secure do they provide everything that we need so the, the question really is is how can we be sure that the apps that we may wish to select select for our patients are the best ones out there What standards are being developed to benchmark apps in order that they could be endorsed confidently by practitioners to their patients?
0: Thank you for that. I'd actually like to turn, if I may, to Martin from a clinician perspective. I'm sure that question resonates with you as well. So, Martin.
4: Yeah, so it's a really good question. We like to know, even if the patient comes in with an app, should we encourage them, should we discourage them, what do we do? And at the moment, we just kind of say, well, you just do what you like. We've got our systems, you've got your systems, and we need to change that and evolve it. We're not the only country struggling with it. Catalonia, Barcelona is very digital, and they've got a system of assessing apps, which is kind of color-coded matrix, and they've looked at thousands and thousands of apps. NICE, on the other hand, has come at it from a more technology assessment, which is too clunky and slow and complex. So that needs to be uh, improved, I think, and Mark will probably comment on that from the NICE perspective. But I think at the end of the day, we do need somebody to guide us in this field. The FDA is looking at it, it's a digital division. Some professional organizations like Diabetes UK, American Heart Association, it's the professionals that actually use their members degrade apps. And I often wonder if, you know, what's that travel site that you actually get scores for hotels? Can't remember the name of that. But TripAdvisor. Why don't we have a TripAdvisor report that shares patient and physician's experience of apps? Now, that's a very consumer-related approach. But I think we do have to think clever, and we can't have a formal HTA-type approach to this. And I needed guidance, you need guidance, patients need guidance. 200,000 of them, which they don't all work. Some of them might be good.
0: If I can just pick up on that before I turn away and ask somebody else, Martin. I was earlier on having um, a bit of a heated debate with another clinical colleague um, in the room who said, I am the clinical expert. I wish to do no harm to my patients, so I should be in a position that I can use my judgment. And, of course, the question is, you know, does the system allow that, Um, which is at at one extreme? And and I just wondered what what your reflections on that position might be.
4: Well, I think you have to think slightly carefully about it. I'm a cardiologist. patient comes in with a blood pressure on an app nicely displayed. The risk of me using that information to make a decision is probably quite low, but probably still legally could be examined, probably not in the UK, but in the States it certainly would be. As soon as you get to more critical data, where actually safety becomes an issue, the standards have to go up. But I think for lots of lifestyle things, I love it if patients use apps. They can show me how active they are or not active, etc. cetera. All of those issues, so it has to be proportionate. But you have to be a thinking clinician, thinking what's the risks, what's the benefits? And the other big issue is, what about the data? How do you import the data from their app into my system? Is it valid? How do I record I've done it? How do I record how I've made decisions based on that as opposed to other information? So there's quite a lot of issues to work through. If it's a low-risk thing, it's fine. The more risk it comes, the more questions there are, and that's where we do need guidance. But case law will help us in England. In the States, it's all about litigation, I think.
0: Um, Nice, Mark. Perhaps you could reflect a little bit on where you see nice's uh, role in in hta with regard to this question
1: yeah sure thanks um sarah so there has been um, an app sort of evaluation pathway um as a sort of strategic ambition between and involving all of the sort of national system partners so uh, not led by nice but involving nice but led by NHS England, NHS Digital, um, involving the um, regulators, Public Health England. And and that ambition started back when there was a thing called, if people remember this, the National Information Board. And I think it was part of a strategy called Paperless 2020, but um, don't quote me. Um, And that envisaged, um, exactly as Martin said, some sort of proportionate evaluation so that those apps that were sort of relatively simple sort of health and well-being aids you know uh, diaries running diaries and so on only got exposed to a sort of evaluation burden um, that was proportionate all and that that pathway envisaged that there would be a set of technical assessments so that's what we now think of as the digital assessment questions that were developed between those sort of partner organisations and, and others. Um, and that system is now coming to work reasonably well. Um, but it's the sort of, it's those future steps um, which have been quite hard to plan, um, partly because of the very fast moving nature of the um, sort of app market and, all, and also because it's so diverse so there was a step in uh, envisaged which which um, where community feedback, crowdsourcing would be sort of in, in invited all the way through again as Martin says to those apps that you can think of as, as um, in themselves technologies so you can um, define the population what the intervention is, what the comparator is, what the outcomes they're probably a relatively small proportion. And there is no way that uh, such a dynamic and innovative market as the app market would need or be helped by you know, um, NICE um, trying to evaluate each and every one of them as technologies. It's just not appropriate. Um, and it would just stifle the innovative nature of the market.
0: Um, Mark. Mordecai, you gave me a challenge to say it correctly. Could I turn to you just to get a a, a perspective more from the end user? Um,
5: Yeah, I think there's something about we're we're very fixated on the word digital. And I think if we maybe begin to think about information and, dare I say, the word agnostic uh, in terms of a channel. So, yeah, we can get all focused on digital. But I think there's something in my head that says we've had information prescriptions, we've had patient information leaflets with medicines for... Years and years and years. Yes, we can get carried away with digital and we all have many of us have mobiles in our hands But I think we need to go back a stage and think a little bit about how are we integrating information into healthcare delivery? Irrespective of whether it's a piece of paper You know I sat with somebody yesterday at the NHS test bed site in Manchester and he pulled out a little piece of paper which I have in my pocket and he says, I use this with my learning difficulties patients. And it simply is a bunch of diagrams, and they point to where they've got pain. And I thought, that's great. you know. And I wanted to bring it here today. I'm not just wave it about. It's simply a piece of paper. But I thought, we've got to get careful that we don't focus all the time on the channel. What we're trying to think about is, what are the therapeutic impacts? Is information in whatever channel a therapy? And if it is, then we need to begin to integrate that. So you know, very quick 30-second vignette, in September 2011, fantastic GP, Mark, you have type 2 diabetes. Thanks very much. He says, you're fat, you're overweight, and I said, well, so are you, but you don't have diabetes. Um, that's what happens when you're a bit cheeky. Um, and he said, here's a prescription for metformin, thank you, goodbye. And I said, well, hold on a minute, behavioral change, peer support, other types of intervention. Nope, there's your metformin, thank you very much. I didn't care whether it was digital or or paper-based. Where's that therapy in lots of different channels? So let's not get carried away with digital. Secondly, we already have something called the NHS England Information Standard, which has been used to appraise lots of information, mainly through charities, not NHS organisations. And apps that go through the apps library, which I still believe is beta, from what I understand, don't need to have gone through the information standard. So here we have two standards at play. One is for digital. And one is for non-digital. Well, hold on a minute. That doesn't seem quite right either. So I think we need a little bit of alignment around that.
0: Perhaps we can come back to that. And I think um, to continue the discussion, um, Mark, on the floor... Can I invite you to to take a couple of further questions on the theme of endorsement?
7: This is I'm really excited about this. I'm going to be able to say and back to the studio. But, uh, okay, who'd like to make an observation or indeed ask a question on the subject of endorsement?
0: Pip Hodgson, NHS England. When this is a rapidly evolving market, and we're not talking about you know a few apps a month. We're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of apps a month coming coming to the forecourt each with their own, you know, USP that they want to sell to both clinicians and patients, how do you make it easily accessible? How does NICE have a platform that makes it easily informative to patients and to clinicians that says, you know, if you've got type 2 diabetes and you are interested in learning how to either self-help yourself as a clinician to offer advice or as a surgeon to say, actually, I want to monitor you a bit more closely, how do you make that easily accessible? Because it shouldn't be focused on regulation. Regulation is a kind of a misnomer. You know, if you're offering... medical device you will be regulated by MHRA for offering services you will be regulated by CQC. As a patient I just want to know how I can better self-help myself and how do I go about doing that and how will you endorse it That's really empowering the consumer to make decisions Colin, can I turn to you
3: I think the term term digital is problematic as you you were saying Mordecai because we seem to be talking about data, information we seem to be talking about um, looking after yourself at some level well-being, things that aren't going to do any harm. You know, the focus I want to bring, and I'm also a clinician, the focus I want to bring is about treating people with problems. What should be paid for in the NHS? What is something you'd be happy that your mum, or your daughter, or your your best friend got, and and could be sure this is actually really going to help them? The pharma industry doesn't just make pills. They're, they're, They're a healthcare industry. The digital therapeutics, a approach should be a new industry, and it should be the same standards as pharmaceutical medicines, and they have to prove they work. And I don't think I think that's where this conversation should end. Actually, um, the other things, the, the app, people who develop apps. See, see, so I don't think I'm developing an app any more than a pharma industry representative would say I make pills. They're providing solutions, and if it isn't a solution, then potentially it shouldn't be provided in the NHS. That's not to say people shouldn't use it. There may be over-the-counter apps, if you like. That's the same way as over-the-counter pills. But I think we should, we should, we should meet the same standards um, because potentially these things are alternatives. I come from a mental health background, um, and we're developing solutions for insomnia. I don't want people to use our solution and not use something else that's evidence-based unless everyone's convinced that our solution actually works better or at least as well as the other solutions that are out there. Because otherwise people will depart from their anxiety treatments, their depression treatments and other things. They won't get adequate treatment doses. They won't get better and we're being irresponsible.
0: Perhaps I could turn to you in terms of your perspective and, and maybe that that question of when is something prescribed versus when is it something that is the over-the-counter uh, intervention as well might be something that perhaps you could touch on. I think quite a lot's been said, um, but
6: just going back to answering your question as well, I think, and I, this is a bugbear of mine, is this word digital? You know, we talk digital mental health, digital therapeutics, and, and I agree, it is just about a different way of delivery. And what we've got to start thinking about is. People like brands. People trust brands. And in this country, the NHS is a brand that we trust. So to have that over-the-counter, what is it? You know, is it nice? Is it NHS? Is it PHE? Who is it? And I think, Mark, you touched upon it, but we have been working collaboratively for the last three years under the Nib programme to start thinking about some of this. We've got a, a base set of standards for what we think could be Possibly prescribed and I put this in inverted commas. We don't have case law So actually any conversation we have with indemnity suppliers is a no-go at the moment Um, That's not to say that we don't have those conversations with the public with people and we're all people So let's have those conversations. I mean mark you said it yourself and then I think we can get to the stage And I also go back, and and I regret sometimes being a doctor because I wanted to be a chemist, um, but my dad said, no, doctor, very good. Um, So (laughs) if you think about the law of entropy, and I wonder whether at this stage we're trying a little bit too hard to put everything into order because we've got a world of drugs, of known therapies which are ordered, and yet we're in this new world that I talked about this morning Maybe we're pushing a little bit too hard, but we need to talk. We need to talk with each other and amongst organisations.
0: Martin, I think you had some reflections on this.
4: Yeah, I, th- I think for the first time it's a kind of real democratisation <coughs> of healthcare. Because in the past, healthcare and usually the doctors controlled the powerful interventions. And you have to use them as a gateway to get to them, almost earn your intervention. Now people are coming along and industry can provide them with tools which they can use as consumers or just people. I'm doing that, and what healthcare struggles with is when does the actual intervention become something that the risk-benefit requires a little bit more expert input? When should we get involved? And it is a gray area. Nobody's saying that there's a clear demarcation, but there must be some point where actually a digital intervention is truly an intervention that may have harm as well as benefit, and it's at that level we need specific guidance. That may not actually be for many, there may be 150,000 that if you want to use them, like multivitamins, if you want to spend your money on them, spend your money. It just gives you expensive urine. You know, that kind of concept, as opposed to some of those that are, are more intervention. But if, there is a real issue there, that we do need to come up with some sort of solution, and maybe we should just focus on those that are really the ones with the potential of harm to make reassure people that they're not harmful.
7: Some representatives of the public uh, service users, patients. Um, so it feels remiss not to ask uh, if someone wants to contribute from this table. Either ask a question. Because one of the really key issues around Dawson for me is around public trust. You know, what are the ingredients that make people feel confident about using using devices? Do you want to have a bit of a go? you just introduce yourself?
0: Hi, my name's Marianne, and I'm from a cooperative called Ginger Giraffe. And um, my question is, how does... Digital therapeutics challenge, if at all, the dominant medical model and where the power lies between clinicians and patients. Because we haven't heard from you, I'm going to invite Mark Kelsey to kick us off on that one, if you wouldn't mind.
2: That's a really interesting question. I think it does challenge it because these kind of uh, apps and and digital health really does start to put the patient in control. I think, and we've started to see that already in some of the simple things that we've started to implement. in general practice, and some of the things that are becoming much more widespread now, things like uh, online uh, access to your repeat prescriptions, online access to your appointment booking. And while those aren't really therapeutics, I think they're starting to give the patient much more power over how they actually access services um, and giving them choice about uh, when they access those kind of services. So I think it can make a big difference. The other side of that, of course, is something we were discussing on our table earlier, which is Uh, the challenge that that gives to uh, doctors and other professionals who've been trained in a medical model. And the real challenge we have, I think, in implementing some of these things is the resistance at that level in wanting to do things. Um, One of the things we've done locally in Southampton is to implement my COPD, which we've uh, heard about earlier on. Um, And despite it being evidence-based, despite there being funding available, uh, there was still some resistance from people Uh, from the professionals in those services who were just very nervous about trying something different. I think we have to start to turn that around uh, so that patients are starting to lead that. Um, And if we can start to build patient voice in requesting some of these things. So I regularly hear people now asking for the ability to book online. And why doesn't my surgery allow booking online? I've heard other places do it. Why, you know, how do we start to build that patient voice so that patients are asking for some of these services and when a patient's diagnosed with COPD that they ask for an online app that they can use to do their pulmonary rehab that's the way we need to turn it
0: around Mark Duman, do you have a comment on that?
2: Yeah, um, I feel a bit of a rogue up
5: here because um, according to at least my HbA1c I've reversed my diabetes so, um, and actually it's not supposed to be reversed Diabetes UK, I have to say I'm in remission but I don't like that scientific term Um, And why am I bringing that up now? Because I've done that without any medical intervention and I don't mean that in a boastful way, I just mean in terms of A, looking at some of the health psychology and looking at different motivational factors, buying myself a blood glucose meter, a flash glucose monitor that allowed me to do good old quantified self and see my figures and then to find a coach and indeed a peer support group who helped me basically get my, my blood sugars down I went into the clinic, sent that, the doctor saw that, and I got an email from, my, actually a WhatsApp from my GP, saying, what have you done? This is amazing. You've done this over the last six months. You have to come and tell us how you've done it. Now, there was no app involved in that. It was all very much face-to-face. It was motivational. And, and I think, going back to the point that was made here, Let us in, you know, let us do some of this stuff for ourselves. And I think somebody earlier, the the gentleman mentioned that, you know, patient engagement is the biggest blockbusting drug. Um, In 2002, Wonless's fully engaged report said that you will save 30 billion pounds with a fully engaged public. I'm not saying it's easy to do, but that's the very deficit we're now looking at. I spoke to 120 medical directors last week at a conference in Oxford. Two of them had heard of the patient activation measure, despite the fact that if you move a patient from level one to level four, you will save anything between 8 to 21% of costs. So it's there in the five-year forward view. It's not about necessarily digital therapeutics. It's about patient-focused interventions, which in some cases may be therapeutic and in some cases may be digital. But ask me first what I want and what I can do, and then we can co-design it, co-deliver it, even co-evaluate it.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm going to suggest that that allows us to segue quite nicely into the issue of commissioning and how we commission the, the, the type of services, products, etc. that patients actually need and want. Um, so I'm going to turn, I'm not sure where you are, but another Mark. Hello. Um, Mark Cooley, who's the Director of Transformation and Performance um, for Southwark CCG.
8: Who's accountable for making some of these decisions and who's really accountable for making choices about what's provided? So my question is this, we have heard lots of talk about movement away from existing commissioning systems to accountable care or integrated care services. Simon Stevens said, you know, that marks the end of the purchaser provider split. So there is something about the payer or purchaser that is changing as we move. So in this new system, Who do you think is the buyer? And I suppose to Sophie's point, to wasting time running around talking to CCGs, who should they be talking to as the responsible purchaser in the system? And if this is a two-part question, for the person or for the agent that you identify, what is the compelling narrative that they want to hear in order to make a purchasing choice?
0: Indra, can I ask you to have a go at that one? I was having this conversation
6: with somebody earlier, and I think... The way we pay for things currently in the NHS it needs to change. We, we admit that. Um, and we do have a team of very clever people sitting on, on the other side in the Strategy and Innovation Directorate looking at how we start paying for digital products but also digital delivery of different systems. It's not just about a therapeutic, but we have different ways now of delivering care. So you've got telemedicine or, or virtual medicine So how do we start doing that? And I think it's a great question. Um, I don't have the answer. Martin?
4: I'm going to sidestep the issue slightly, but just two anecdotes about my experience of introducing remote monitoring, remote consultation, etc. One, I had to present to a big board of the great and the good about the idea and what I wanted to do. And at the end they said, oh, that sounds fantastic. You can do what you like as long as you don't want one penny more at the end of the year. So, in other words, innovate as long as it doesn't cost more. And then that that was all I needed to actually make all of those changes because there was no net change in the thing. The other thing was a a very wise um, chair of an NHS trust. And at the end of the conversation she said, why is it that all NHS people seek permission? Why don't you just do what you think is the right thing to do from your professional group and just get on and do it instead of constantly running around saying who do we have to get approval from? So I think there's an element obviously of cost where there's a big cost change and NICE is always interested if there's a big cost change, NHS Englanders, but a lot of this is actually process change without net cost. And we should just get on and do it. Nobody needs a randomised trial to have SMS reminder of your appointments or online booking. Just get on and do it. It's a no-brainer. Or maybe I'm just being naive. But I think a lot of things we can do without extra money.
0: Mark Kelsey.
2: I'd agree with that. I think um, before today, I would have really struggled to answer the question. I think we've heard a lot of the answers already. I think the question of who takes the risk is really key. And it harks back to the previous question around... um, apps and who decides what's appropriate for people to prescribe and um, I think a key part of that is who then takes the risk. So in terms of integrated commissioning systems that we might develop in the future uh, and uh, to be clear we can't probably do that fully until there's a change in the law because currently uh, commissioners are CCGs uh, and NHS England Um, but we're certainly seeing movement towards those kind of accountable care systems. Um, I think the uh, part of the answer to the question is probably that it needs to be at the provider uh, level, um, and, and as Martin said, many of the in innovations that we're looking to do um, are there, there isn't a net cost. Actually, it's just a change in working practice, and actually it will streamline and, and make things better. Um, and we've seen that um, in things like eConsult that we're started to again introduce in practices. Um, fairly widely. We had a discussion earlier on our table around uh, how things are paid for um, and un- obviously under an accountable care system you would have a capitated budget um, and potentially those innovations could be then funded by the provider within that capitated budget. We have to find ways to make that happen and I think there's a, a tremendous inertia in people not wanting to change how they work as we, as we said earlier. Um, and in that situation, it's really helpful to have the kind of incentivisation uh, that money brings uh, in the short term to try and make things happen differently. So, an example of how that's worked, for example, in Southampton uh, with eConsult, and, and I guess nationally because we're only doing what's available nationally, um, is the national funding for eConsult was available and we know it's available for two years. Uh, that's enabled us to purchase the system and roll it out in our practices. And we're already seeing the benefits. It's already paid for itself. Um, and, and that's without even full uptake across all of our practices. We've, we've really only got uh, a small number, probably single-digit number of us who are using it fully um, and actively. And just in that small number of practices, the system has already paid for itself. So by using the funding in the short term, we can start to prove the case that actually in the longer run it can be part of a, lo- of a capital budget. And I think that's probably, for me, that's the answer of how it will work. But we don't yet have all the systems in place for that to work.
6: And just a final point on that. One of the things um, I've discussed with colleagues in NHS England, but I think there's a paradigm across this, is digital is seen as almost a second-class intervention. And there's always that comparison. So you've talked about e-consult paying for itself, but it pays for itself within the, the structure we have had of a face-to-face consultation. So actually... We've got to start thinking about it differently. It might not be, and we've seen this so much as it's a full-time equivalent, but actually you've only got one full-time equivalent, so how are you quoting a saving of three full-time equivalents when we've only ever paid for one? Uh, So it's thinking about these things is actually fundamentally different versus just another way of doing it.
0: Mark Campbell.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And by the way, um, we should say that being called Mark and being of Scott's Ancestry were independent variables in being selected for this panel. Um, anyway, um, I think the question is really interesting because it sort of presupposes that um, that the approach to commissioners is always a push approach, where technology developers are sort of trailing round trying to, you know, pr- promote um, the adoption of some new thing. But I think there's another aspect to it, which is, you know, sometimes we see a strong pull. From the system so you know we've got we've got the biggest library of evidence-based guidelines for standard care pathways in the world i think we've now got about 200 plus um, clinical guidelines defining most of the standard care pathways in the nhs and some in social care um, and a whole set of quality standards you know so that the system can um, demonstrate that it's meeting those guidelines and so what that produces um, from commissioners is a pool um, on digital technologies to enable them to implement those standard pathways. Um, and that's something that we see happening time and again. So those guidelines may, rec- may, may contain recommendations for the use of digital technologies where they enable that pathway. So we haven't made individual recommendations on individual products, because we don't need to. You know, it just makes sense, as some of the other panellists have said, you know, these are in themselves things that enable standard care um, to be implemented. I'd suggest we move on to the next question, but I, I just wanted to make an
7: observation on the commissioning points. It's such a great question. It's something you and me have talked about before, which is which is there's a development in the kind of commissioning landscape that's gonna, gonna change the narrative around this completely. Uh, and that is our shift from payment by results, i.e. payment payment by activity, to a world where we start to think about paying for outcomes. And as and as we start to have provider integrated and otherwise, having taken responsibilities for a population, and they're getting incentivized, paid for clinical outcomes, do you know what? They will find the best ways of delivering those outcomes. And as we've heard from the previous panel and from this panel, there's an evidence base around how those outcomes could, could go. So. I, I couldn't resist but to fly the outcomes uh, uh, flag.
9: For me, it's about a cultural change that's needed. Um, I work in a big company and we're disrupted by technology. And when things get really bad, we start losing market share, we start losing money, then we have to make those tough decisions. And I I just feel that the NHS is under so much pressure that the tough decisions should be around improvement in in healthcare and quality, and digital enables that, Um, whether it's... going to be saving money, whether it's just improving the quality of care, that's got to drive the cultural change in the organization. The other piece I just want to say is there's lots of great innovation out there. You need to tap into that if you're going to drive some of these preventative care issues. And the one thing missing is the business model to support these small organizations that can survive maybe 18 months to two years. You need an outcomes-based business model for these organisations. That's the key thing that the NHS should now do that's going to drive transformational change in the healthcare system.
0: So perhaps some observations rather than a a specific question, but Colin, I wondered whether you might, as as the entrepreneur uh, on the panel, whether you wanted to reflect on that issue around the life cycle for companies and that need to be fleet of foot
3: yes yes I mean I, I, think, um, I think I think I agree entirely with what you're, you're saying uh, our company big health we, we left the UK uh, and set up the office in San Francisco because we could get much more traction uh, in the US than we could get in the UK um, we're now involved in the UK because there's there's the things that seem to be happening we've grown the company from uh, five people as Sophie mentioned earlier on to about coming up for 55. No, but it's been a tough, it's been a tough journey. Um, I, d- I don't think the NHS has got a crisis of, of uh, policies, processes, or management. It's a crisis of leadership. This is a, it's a leadership problem. It's a decision-making issue. Uh, decisions need to be made, um, and decisions shouldn't need to be driven through uh, processes that are not fit for purpose. Uh, I, I think I think that is one of the issues. I'll give a, if I can give you a brief anecdote. I was a member. I was a clinical director uh, in, in a service in one of the first trusts formed in the UK in the early nineties. And I ventured at a trust uh, board meeting. Uh, the email looked interesting, and was told, resoundingly by the chief executive, that it would never take off. Um, I, it is up to the industry, I think to lead this. It won't be led by the NHS alone, it's got to be led by industry to to be disrupt, disruptive enough to help create these uh, changes. What the NHS can do is support industry in being able to make those uh, changes and not allowing so many uh, green shoots simply to, to die uh, without being tended. But I agree totally with what you're saying. Can I just say just from a medical point of view, we are like innovation.
4: We like change. I'm a cardiologist. We've innovated massively in how we treat heart disease, and there's a huge benefit of outcomes. So don't get the message that medical people or healthcare people don't like innovation. I think it is about the structures round about them that make it difficult to innovate and they try hard and but as soon as they stick their head above the parapet, it's quite difficult. So the innovation happens almost underneath the surface rather than being driven centrally. But we love it, and and to pick up on your point, absolutely delighted if an individual with a condition doesn't need our input because they're so good at self-management. That is success for us too. So I think we're all saying the same thing. It's about getting the model for speeding up this process, but only for innovation that works. Innovation by itself is not valuable. We want to see where it is valuable.
5: And just to be a wee bit challenging, so you, would you be happy if, you know, Tal Goldsworthy and other people who, for example, built their own aorta using computer-assisted design with cardiologists, put cardiologists out of jobs? Or any clinicians? Because what I'm hearing here is we need good old cash-releasing benefits. So we need to begin to say, it's not about more medicine and more medics, despite my daughter going into medicine, it's about less medicine and more citizen. Um, So where do we get those cash-releasing benefits? Where can e-consult and digital health or paper-based healthcare begin to reduce that demand? Because we don't have a burning platform, there's no platform, it's burnt, it's gone. Um, So I think that's what we need to be speaking about. And I'm not quite seeing that yet in tariff and even outcomes-based healthcare. Um, We need to, I think, move into that area of not just looking at my past medical history and my current medication, but asking me as part of my GP registration, Mark, what are your health beliefs? What are your medicine's beliefs? What's your level of health literacy and what's your level of digital literacy as well? Then we can begin to tailor, if appropriate, particular interventions, or indeed, in some cases, all cases, most cases, let you do it yourself.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn to a, a different subject. I'm not sure, given what we've just been discussing, it necessarily segues nicely from from the themes that we've just been covering but perhaps it might act to um, change the focus a little bit which is to look at the issue of prescribing um, and I think we have Tanya Kerno in the audience somewhere hello beautifully positioned next to mark so Tanya
10: I'm with health watch and I'm a representative from health watch central west London which covers eight ccgs and a population of just over a million and a half people Um, So collectively our question is commissioners require a strong evidence-based and usually follow nice guidance. Uh, This takes time. Software evolves more quickly than medication and new apps will constantly be emerging, which is what we've been discussing. If a patient comes to rely heavily on an app and it fails, how will they be supported? How will the use of digital therapies be monitored to ensure that patients receive adequate supervision by an appropriate medical or health professional? And how is harm assessed?
0: Thank you for the seven questions that I think were embedded into that one. So um, I'm, I'm going to start, I think, if I may, Martin, from a clinician perspective, this question of harm
4: yeah, so that's the real fear that we have, so I can't see you. That's the real fear that we have. We don't really mind wearing a Fitbit and doing what you like with the Fitbit. The evidence is actually it doesn't help you lose weight at all. But that's fine. It's such a low-risk thing. We're OK. It's that exactly that nightmare scenario where it seems on the surface to be a good thing. It should be associated with good outcome, but it's not. And then it gets unpicked as to where did it go wrong, who's responsible, And then legally, of course, as I mentioned, case law as to who can be blamed for this breakdown in good care hasn't happened so far, as far as I'm aware, in UK medicine. So it's uncharted territory, but that's what makes physicians fearful of prescribing an app, of getting involved with that, or even importing data for the very kind of more severe conditions where actually it could be life-threatening. The one caveat to that is that diabetes, which we've been hearing about, is um, patients themselves adjusting one of the most highly potentially toxic drugs, insulin, um, themselves. And it doesn't seem to be associated with mass suicide or deaths on the streets. So I think sometimes it's overplayed the risk, but because we're in new territory, that's why conservative physicians don't move into the area. As to persuading a commissioner... All of those questions that if you can't ask them is a good excuse not to commission. So that's the thing that we do need to move forward on. I use apps a lot with my patients. Uh, They have heart failure, a very complex cardiac problem. But actually, when it comes to major decision-making, both the patients and the physicians tend to default to the older system where we're confident we know that the decision tree works. When we use more modern technology, quite often people jettison it when it comes to more life-threatening situations. So these are just observations, there's not answers to you, but it's exactly the nub of the question with the kind of more risky apps. And at the moment, we have no idea of grading things even.
0: Perhaps, um, Mark Kelsey, I can turn to you, and then maybe Colin, it would be great to get your reflections on this as somebody who must be um, living this and thinking this through on a daily basis.
2: Um, this, this feels to me like uh, there's a parallel with with medicines and pharmaceuticals and, and what we're talking about is, is essentially post-marketing surveillance. So um, there's a huge potential, I think, with apps that actually it would be much easier to monitor these kind of things and to pick them up because we'll have access to the users. We'll know who's using an app through the technology. We'll be able to gather feedback from patients on, on how that's going and how that's working. I think... When things fail, we'll probably revert back to what we've always done, which is you'll end up having a face to face conversation with the GP or the specialist, and then we'll find another way to manage it. Um, and as a, a pragmatic person, as a GP, I bet that's probably what I would want to do as a GP. I'd want to know that there was that fallback mechanism that we, would, we could revert to. Um, I think there's another parallel with medicines, and, and we, we already have uh, issues with medicines with supply. Uh, and that sort of thing, so if an, if an app uh, company, for example, was to go bust, uh, and therefore an app's no longer available, uh, we, we might have an issue there, and, and we find ways to manage those kind of things, and I think we would expect probably that there'll be some market response to that, and there will be other, other competitors available who might respond and, and fill a gap, and, and that may well happen as well with, uh, in terms of quality and improving quality, uh, because apps that aren't of high quality will hopefully, through the market process, die off and we'll see better apps uh, being developed to replace them. Um, I think in terms of uh, quality improvement, there's a really, it's really important that apps uh, fit the strategic goals of commissioners as well. So uh, when we're looking at what we're commissioning, we need to make sure that those goals are being addressed by whatever the app is providing. Colin.
0: Colin.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's really, I think, a very important uh, question. Thanks for raising that. Um, I'm going to stick to my thesis that we're talking about digital therapeutics, uh, digital medicine. And and I think it's every bit as important uh, that there's clinical governance around this whole territory as there is around medicines management in general, whether that medicines, uh, whether it's surgical or whether it's uh, pill-based or or whatever. I don't think, um, you know, I'm not particularly keen on on the idea of of this being a discussion about apps. It's, a lot of the variance in healthcare outcomes is explained by human behavior. We're actually trying to help people um, take responsibility um, for their own health, but give people tools that actually work. It's irresponsible to give people who want to take responsibility for their health tools that we don't know if, if they work. And it's certainly not responsible to pay for those. And um, the question over here earlier on was about who pays for this. We pay for this. It's not commissioners that pay for this. We pay for this. Citizens pay for this. And they, and they should expect to, that they will be properly governed. And I think also this industry, this new industry, this digital industry, if you like, um, uh, should be part of uh, the healthcare system, become integrated into it, just in the same way as medicines already integrated into it. It's a partnership between pharmaceuticals and other forms of industry and healthcare to provide. I'm not so sure the NHS should be bothered about creating all this. Um, I'm not sure they've necessarily got the skill set to do this. Um, I think there's a need to, for a partnership to develop, and that the clinical governance aspect of that that you've been raising is very, very important. Um, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be taken at all lightly. Mark Campbell. So, just by way
1: of sort of, I guess, reassurance, um, two or three observations in addition to what's been said to a really kind of important question. So, one is that in terms of the next steps for the sort of app evaluation pathway, um, those questions around that risk stratification are exactly what the various national partners are trying to push forward. So, NHS England, Public Health England, Nice, MHRA. So those are exactly the questions that we're focused on. What we're a little short of, and there are models around the world, even in very um, sort of, um, but even in very sort of digitally advanced countries like in Scandinavia, they're still not quite implemented yet. Is how do you make the decisions around that risk stratification, which is quite a sort of multifactorial thing? Um, I suppose the second thing is that. Um, You know, we've always been very clear that the technical assessment using those digital assessment questions, and let's not forget they're still in their first generation, so we're still learning about how to provide, you know, satisfactory, um, technical, scientific assurance about apps do include... Um, most if not all of those points, so for example, they include a, a check on the sort of financial health of companies, you know, are they likely to be around, Um, for for a reasonable period, as well as things like, you know, if the app's performing arithmetic calculations, does it do that exactly the same way every time it does the calculation? And does it matter whether it's used once or a million times? Those are really, really... And actually, most of the discussion we've had today, uh, which is really uh, um, uh, excellent, has been about the value to the healthcare system. But actually you probably don't want to start your volume assessment until you're satisfied about the technical standards that the app can fulfill. Um, and the third thing is, um, I don't think we've got a um, representative from the regulator today, so we're not a regulator, so some people think we are, but um, the MHRA's input is very relevant to this. So we are seeing the introduction now of a new set of medical device uh, regulations. Uh, those include enhanced and additional um, provision for regulating uh, medical software, which of course isn't new. Apps are just the latest generation of medical software that we've had for sort of decades. And they will see um, the um, uh, level of regulation, the burden of regulation increased for those apps that pose the highest risk to patients. So they will be required um, to have additional evidence uh, around their clinical safety before they're allowed to be placed on the market when those regulations are fully um, implemented.
0: I'm, I'm conscious that we don't have very much time left, so I'm going to turn to the final theme that was being discussed around the room, which is the issue of pricing. Um, and somewhere we have John. Thank you, John Grummet, who's the CEO of Changing Health. Um, can I turn to you, John?
11: John Grummet, uh I've lived with diabetes for 30 years and vice president of Diabetes UK. And I'm also led a spin-out from Newcastle University about 18 months ago called Changing Health. We're in an environment where, at the moment, we have new drugs coming to market at about... 80 quid a month or a thousand pounds a year. And once that price structure and authorization has been put out there, they're prescribed at scale, mass scale, nationally. Yet we have evidence based tools, be they digital or otherwise, that can improve outcomes better than those products at about a tenth of the price. So, my question to you is is price a relevant? Criteria for decision-making? And if so, how should it be set and who decides what it should be?
0: Indra, if I may, I'm going to turn to you first of all, just in terms of your perspective, because as clinical lead for digital health and AI, um, in NHS England, clearly you have a desire to see the pricing strategies uh, looked at in in the round and, and this issue of how do you price a a digital intervention as opposed to an alternative therapeutic uh, intervention must be something that that you think about. So perhaps I can ask for your reflections and then perhaps um, Mark Kelsey, I can turn to you from a commissioner perspective.
6: Yeah, and I'll just talk briefly. I mean, Mark from NICE spoke about our digital assessment questions, but as part of that, we do ask, and these are questions that were generated by various bodies around the room, of what is, the, what is your business model? So it's not necessarily about how much do you cost at the market rate, but what's your business model around a digital product? And, and it goes back to the point I made earlier. Quite a lot of companies give the equivalent, or they say we would price ourselves as, as a replacement of this. So I take one product. I won't name it for various reasons, but it's, um, it's a self-test R monitor. And they've priced it at the rate it costs for a nurse to take your blood, but that doesn't make sense because, well, you know, we pay for needles, you pay for time, you pay for transport, etc. But you can't quantify that. So the way they've priced it is to say, well, we've saved you in the NHS a full-time equivalent nurse who costs X amount per day per year. So that's our pricing model. Now that's that's okay for today. But for the future, we have to start thinking differently. And we do have a team who are looking at that, and they've talked to quite a few companies, I think, in this room, but also internationally to say, what is the pricing model? We've had those conversations again of think about it differently. Don't think about it as an equivalent. Think about it how we we change it. And I won't talk about health technology assessments, but I think they're probably also key, key to some of these pricing models.
0: So, Mark Kelsey, if we may throw it from a Commissioner perspective, and then perhaps we can come on to NICE, obviously, as, as the organisation that looks at the issue of cost-effectiveness.
2: Uh, so, sat here as a Commissioner, I think, obviously, I'm going to say price is relevant, um, because it's it's really key to, to what we do. Um, and we have a limited budget within, within commissioning. Um, I think I have struggled in the past with... Uh, seeing innovations and how they're priced to, to truly be able to compare one with another. So very often things are not priced in a way that allows us to compare with the cost of a drug or a prescription. And I think the example of the INR monitoring is, is good because it does illustrate the, the complexity of some of the things that we're actually commissioning and, and paying for. Um, so it's really difficult. I, I, don't, I don't think I really have an answer as to, to how we ensure that we are happy to pay for them for some of these things beyond going back to some of the things we've already said around evidence. And I think if we can be much better about having the evidence behind the interventions and being clear that um, by paying for something, whatever the cost is and however the, whatever the pricing model is, uh, if we are paying for something, that it is gonna definitely have a benefit. Or we can say with some level of certainty that it will probably have a benefit. Um, and that for me as a commissioner is what we would tend to look at. So it's not so much the absolute cost, um, it's whether we've got evidence that it will, will provide a benefit to the patient and will be at least uh, uh, equivalent in cost terms. Um, so I think having clear evidence, and I think where I've struggled in the past with uh, looking at some of these innovations, it's been more that we haven't got the evidence that even if the price is equivalent, that we are actually going to save that money on the other side. Um, and that, that, for me, is a difficult bit. It goes back to that that evidence. And the other thing just to say, I think uh, one of the thing that le- that drives us most in the CCG, certainly where I am and I can't speak for other CCGs, is the quality improvement. It's not all about the cost. Um, all of the things we look at are driven by trying to improve quality in our services. So um, uh, if we can uh, if we can marry up that quality improvement with, with the cost, then it makes it much easier for us to, to make a decision about it. And, and again, that comes down to the evidence, I think.
1: Mark? Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's an interesting, interesting example, actually, that um, the panel's raised. So we have recommended um, some of the technologies used for self-testing of INR in our diagnostics guidance a few years ago, actually, um, on the basis that it was, uh, after the evaluation, it was found to be clinically and cost effective. Cost effective in this case meaning meaning that the additional quality of life benefits um, uh, were uh, offset or were greater than the additional cost that the technology introduced. Um, so not, not a cost saving technology, but a cost effective technology. Um, and I suppose there's a sort of question underneath the question which is, should digital always be sort of cost saving? Um, And I think the comparison with medicines is quite a a tricky and quite a risky one actually because it's very, very unusual um, that new medicines ever claim claim to be cost saving. They always incur additional cost and the argument is that the additional benefit is greater than the additional cost and that's the basis for most of our technology appraisal guidance. Um, And I suppose the challenge to technology developers is you know, what, what's the clarity around the value proposition? So what, what, what are the claimed benefits for the healthcare system? And if there is an upfront investment, um, and it, seem, it seems unlikely that you'd have a national reference pricing system, as for medicines, for digital, it's just too big and too diverse, then, so you'll then have a list price, and then you'll have some sort of street street price, uh, and, and and the test becomes: what are the claim system benefits, and are they enough to offset? Are the savings downstream enough to offset the additional cost of the upfront investment? And that's a pretty standard econo- economic evaluation that's applied in our methods, you know, most most of the
3: time.
0: So we're drawing to a closer Colin, first of all, and and then Mark Duman, to make some very brief comments in relation to that point.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, thank you very much. I'm not a commercial uh, person, although we have a a company. Um, But let me just comment um, on this. I think what we're hearing is all very difficult. Um, Sure, it is difficult, but we've got to resolve it. Um, If I take the example that, that we've worked on most which is uh, Sleepio for insomnia. Uh, The current cost uh, to the NHS is £72 million a year, providing sleeping pills, 12 million prescriptions annually, um, plus other drugs that are given off-label for sleep, which is against clinical guidelines. The clinical guideline is for CBT for insomnia, which is uh, you've got a 10,000 to one chance of getting that. Um, We have done... I published six clinical trials, two in two currently in, uh, under review, another seven in progress. Um, so it's great to, to be working with uh, Innovate uh, UK and, and various uh, uh, y- different uh, possibilities, like London Digital, of, of trying to roll things out, to implement things. But it is difficult um, as innovators to work within the frames of reference which intrinsically limit. Uh, Uh, you to the way that you would normally do things Um, because you're trying to do it within a system which is not really digitally friendly or ready uh, for that so my answer to the pricing question is national top down national pricing not negotiating with every CCG, why would they have a different point of view? Something far wrong um, if, if different commissioning groups have a different point of view and something review evidence differently. National pricing, that's what happens for other forms of medicine I don't think digital medicine should be different Uh, Very quick things. Number
5: one, can we learn from other industries? In healthcare, we tend to stay siloed and and think, you know, digital has happened elsewhere. Number two, on the train down here, um, I was reading an article where Vertex Pharmaceuticals are debating the price of a uh, a cystic fibrosis drug with NHS England and others at the moment, um, and they're turning around. I think I don't understand the whole story and saying it costs a lot of R&D. And my colleague from IBM Watson Health who very kindly bought me the coffee I'm drinking said to me, why do people think that software development doesn't cost money? So I think something that also needs to come into the pricing thing is how much did it cost to do the R&D.
0: Thank you for that. Um, Sadly, I need to draw this to a close. We could have continued this discussion around pricing and moving into value. I think one of the really interesting takeaways for me is, and I think something that has run through the discussion, has been the issue of risk and stratification of risk. Um, which is a very important takeaway from the discussion this afternoon um, thank you very much to my esteemed panel I, I hope you feel that you have full opportunity to cover the questions thank you all for your uh, interesting questions and prompts for the discussion